In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men, fishers of humanity. The Son of Man steps onto the battlefield that is the human project. The enmity between God and humanity now broken into outright hostility, war between nation and nation, between tribe and tribe, between family and family, within the family and within the soul of each and every human being. The time is fulfilled, he says. Repent and believe in the gospel. Hear and accept the good news that will set you free, that will unite your divisions, integrate and reestablish the bonds of peace among you, within you, and with God. That will, as the collect says, bring the families of the nations, divided and torn apart by the ravages of sin, to be subject to his just and gentle rule. And how will this happen? Who will set this in motion? That would be you and I, by proclaiming a word from God and by letting the word do its work of drawing God's human creatures back to him again, of luring them back, alluring, drawing them back as their hardened hearts are changed and charged again with the message of God's unconditional love. Like the lure that an angler attaches to her line, casting it into a gentle stream until the sunlight catches it and draws the fish out of their hiding place deep below. This is the model of the Anglican understanding of salvation, starting with Augustine and then re-energized by those Augustinians who led us through the Reformation. This is the model of how God draws us back to himself and how we are to let his word do the same for others, setting the line with the lure of his promises and letting his word work its way as hooked the hearers are drawn, dragged to him. Not a matter of a drag net then, at the end of some factory freezer trawler scooping up everything from the bottom of the seabed in its clutches. And it's not achieved either by proclaiming some set of spiritual laws in which the sinfulness of humanity and the death that sin pays as its wage is the gravity that drags us down once we've been presented with that beautiful initial image of John 3.16 of how God so loved the world and then we settle into the real business of the hell, the eternal death from which God is rescuing us. You can take these texts in many ways. You can listen to them in many ways. The pattern that we respond to and even react to in this, the, the rescue that is waiting is always out of reach until we do 
something. And only we can do the work, pay the wage by our work of faith. Say the prayer, spit out the words, so that the lock on God's heart can be unloosed just long enough to rapture you in. And we'll keep that sawdust trail open, running down the middle of the church until something draws you up to hear that prayer and respond. I'm not saying it doesn't work. In fact, it's argued that it's the worst way of bringing people to faith except for all the others. <laughs> but the Anglican project takes a different spin. Whereas this project says it's really up to you to change your own heart. If you're the fish and this is the boat and Jesus is in the boat, you've got to jump out of that water and you've got to get those prayer muscles going until you can jump right clear of the side of the boat and then you're in. And however you get to want it, that's kind of your problem. But the only motivation that we've ever discovered to be fail-safe is fear, fear of the alternative. And there's always a steel fist inside the velvet glove of this kind of evangelism. You do it or else think of the, think of the alternative. Uh, that was also the model of the pre-Reformation Catholic Church. It's amazing the resonance between the modern evangelical church and the pre-Reformation church as well. And we've talked about how in a pre-Reformation Anglican church, this church would have a big arch here dividing you all, the great unwashed, from us, the ordained, behind our screen. And painted on this chancel arch would be invariably one subject, the last judgment. Showing on one side, this side, on the left-hand side of the judge, the devil, having his way with all those who have succumbed to other allurements, been baited, caught, and tempted by the seven deadly sins, and can now be seen being dragged into the fiery mouth of hell despite their desperate protestations. It's too late. Heaven forbid such a sermon would be preached in an evangelical church. The medieval church ran on fear, hell, was the default mode. And Sunday after Sunday, as you came to confront the image of that red-robed Lord of Doom, Jesus Christ, that would be Christ, the Lord of Doom, the judge, sitting between the sheep and the goats. This is no good shepherd who's going to hop off his throne and go forth to gather up the strays. No, he sits impassively, enthroned, ensconced in power like some medieval monarch consumed by his own magnificence as the wolves wait greedily for, for their reward. A few souls on his right intercede with Mary, his mother, and are granted a favorable hearing. But none approaches Jesus, the judge. Was one among the saved or the damned then? The question that will hit you as you stare at that thing, one never knew. Do your best, one was told. God will do the rest. But how did you know whether you had done your best? You didn't. And caught up in perpetual uncertainty, you paid for the intervention of the priests. That would be us. And you lived a life of silent despair while they did the praying or abandoned yourself to whatever this world could offer as a distraction. And the fires of hell burned on through time to eternity. 
One wonders again and again how much this story has changed over time. It plays to the anxieties deep down of a humanity which is born with one set of DNA, which is a hunger, a desire to return to God, but a learned pattern which reinforces again and again a sense of utter inability to do it, to get back. Right now, it's the couches of therapists rather than the pews of the churches that are filled with those who are defeated by the inability of themselves to find salvation. When we, the saved, go forth with Jesus as the answer then to gather some of them up, we somehow never address the deeper question. Bill Bright would say that the deepest question for us is, do I know God personally? It's all about knowing God personally. I would argue that is not the deepest question at all. The deepest question that haunts us is, does God know me personally? Is he even aware that I exist? And does he want to know? And how does he look at me and what I'm doing? And why is it that the harder I try to make my own way in this world, in this culture, it's all about being authentic, finding your own way, being the captain of your own soul, discovering the way of living that works for you, for me, and just for me. And the need, the greatest need that someone like that has, and that's all of us, one way or the other, is affirmation, not love, affirmation, like our dog gives us, we pray. The dog who forgives us when we come back after three weeks of being away and sticking him or her in some kennel. She doesn't bite our ankles, as Ashley Knoll says, and says, where the heck were you? Just shows love. And that's what all of us want as a reward for our striving to be the me that only me can be. God offers us love. The lovely hymn that we sang has hinted that that love brings its own peace, but only by first shattering any sense of peace that this world can give. And the affirmation that makes us again and again the center of our own life, that makes us feel like we're entitled to that affirmation from anyone who comes close to us, is the curse of so many of the relationships we have. The truth is, we know that there's a barrier between us and God, and we know that we hurt others, and no one really needs to hammer that into our head. And we know that we can't stop doing it. For Anglicans, then, the spiritual laws are replaced by the spiritual promises. We call them the comfortable words, and they were collected by Cramner with a little help for the first prayer book of 1549. We don't say them in this season, and I'm hoping you will miss their absence. We'll fill in the blank later in the liturgical year. At the point in the service where having been absolved of our sins after the prayers of the people remind us of how we failed to love, we are welcomed into the peace of one another's arms and to the table, but not before we hear this invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all who travail, and I will refresh your souls. This is the Lord Jesus 
not up there on some arch. He's somehow down here among us. And he's opening his arms and saying, heavy as your heart is, come to me right now as you are. Bring your burdens with you. I'll take them from you. Whatever it is that is holding you back and getting you down as you try to make your tiny, perfect little life, it's mine. Feel the weight being lifted off. No talk of sin being some impermeable barrier to God. That's understood. What we hear now is God reaching across that barrier, taking, making the first move. Then the verse with which Bill Bright's formulary opens, it comes second. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We hear the notion of perishing and we shudder. But in the context as it unfolds, what we are invited to see is that our human longing to be saved, to have those self-imposed burdens lifted off, is affirmed in the best sense by a divine longing to save us. Redemption is God's preferred project. He waits to save us, to get involved, to fix up the messes we make that we can't fix for ourselves. Again, the emphasis is not what must I do for God, it's what has God determined to do for me, whether I like it or not. It's about how you hear the text in your heart, I guess. Are you looking anxiously to yourself, looking out for God who's coming after you? Or are you looking to a God who is working for you, better than you deserve, with greater and greater trust? The next statement, hear what St. Paul says. The saying is true and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save saints, those who were pure in heart, those who had got it together and worked with grace and were now ready for their... Re no. <laughs> no, he came into the world to save sinners. He has no use for the righteous, for those who consider themselves righteous. He has no need of them and there's nothing he can do with them. He's looking for those who sin and know it. The assurance gets stronger. Jesus comes to judge, to punish, no, to save. Now listen to this from Hebrews. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin, to do sin to death by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed because of sin for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not up there to punish us for sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Sin is dealt with. Jesus is coming for his own to take them home. He's cast the lure out of these promises and he's hooked us. Yes, he'll take us as we are. And yes, once we're heads, he'll turn us upside down and inside out. It won't be easy, but even if we let go, he will not. 
He will stalk us. He will hound us into heaven whether we want it or not. And we will come to love what he has in mind to us. Finally, from our need to be set free from sin, God's final promise, then if we can't stand up and make a case for ourselves in that divine courtroom, no less than Jesus himself will be the lawyer for the defense at the high court of judgment. If anyone sins, which means everyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, someone to plead our case. Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, the one who has already covered the cost that those sins should extract from us, the debt that we should pay ourselves. Good old classical atonement theory, we're not done with it yet. The price is paid, the prison door swings open, we are free. We have only to rise and walk and step into his embrace. It's not just then what we hear, it's how we hear it. There is nothing wrong with those four laws. But there's something above law in God's economy, and it's called grace. And thank God for it. Do we trust God's promises, then, of this grace? Or do we imagine when all is said and done that it's really not for us after all, that his love is meant for someone else, and that's it? This kind of deep, deep insecurity is at the root of the burden we bear and that we place on all those who bear it with us. And we turn to the world to try to give us all the things that only God can give, deciding again and again that he doesn't want to do anything for us, and he won't. And when that proves ever, never enough, we seek to get or grab from others what we can't seem to get from what we've already got. The answer is in the collect. Almighty Father, whose will is to restore all things, to restore all things, to bring all things back together in your beloved Son, in his beloved Son, Jesus, to set the throne of Jesus on this earth and bring all things back into loving obedience. Your beloved Son, the King of all, govern the hearts and minds of those in authority. Govern our hearts and minds so that he may be in authority over our hearts and pray that our leaders be delivered from the bonds that bind them and drag us all down with them, bonds of fear. Pray that the gentle gospel of Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep who leave the ninety and nine to find the one who is lost will become the means by which his sweet and just and gentle rule becomes the law written in our hearts and in our lives and in our land. Amen. <laughs>